Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. This week, we go pop for an episode featuring singer, songwriter, producer, and actor Debbie Gibson. Debbie signed to Atlantic Records at just 16 years old, and less than two years later, she broke the record books, becoming the youngest person ever to write, produce, and perform a number one single completely on their own with her song, Foolish Beat. Her album, Electric Youth, spent five weeks at number one on Billboard's top album charts. She's since sold over 10 million albums and was recognized by ASCAP as Songwriter of the Year, along with Bruce Springsteen, in 1989. In addition to music, she's gone on to star on Broadway in touring musicals, as well as television and film. This interview was recorded live in August 2018 at Atlantic Records in front of a live audience which included some of Deb's biggest fans, the Debheads. Deb's latest studio album, The Body Remembers, is out in August 2021. It's her first studio album of all original songs in over 20 years. So with no further ado, please welcome Debbie Gibson. Thank you. So we have a lot of people here. We have some Deb heads here. Yes. Hi, Deb heads. <laughs> All here celebrating several things, one of which is the 30th anniversary of a special release. I mean, it's, I feel like it's the 30th anniversary of everything right now. I'm like, which release is it right now? <laughs> I think it, well, Foolish Beach just, just celebrated its uh, 30th, number one. And, 30th yeah, anniversary of yeah. a number one record. Yeah. Amazing. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about an amazing movie project that you have coming up very yep. soon. Our friends from Hallmark are here. Yes, they are. So we have Hallmark a lot of house. friends in the building tonight. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Woo! So for those of you who are new here and are joining us for the first time, sometimes, like tonight, we get lucky where not only can we talk about an amazing musical career, past, present, and future, but also talk about how that career started and had so much success right here at Atlantic Records. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you. So, <laughs> thank you, Atlantic. <laughs> so before we really get going, very, very important question. Yes. Could be the most important question of the evening. Yes. I'm ready. Deb, Debbie, or Deborah? <laughs> okay, here's how it went down. And we just had this funny conversation in your office, which was, you know, they tried, they, the powers that be at the time, who I guess were they were trying to create my name here at Atlantic. They were going to give me the one-hit wonder dance name. It was going to be Debbie G. And I said, no, I can't do that. You guys, I, I'm, it's, it's going to go beyond the first single. Trust me. I'm going to make sure of it. Let's, 
let's give me a last name. How about even use my own? Um, so growing up, friends and family called me Deborah or Deb. Debbie Gibson seemed to have that stage name kind of ring to it. So that's, that's what we went with. And today? It's come full circle because I went through the Broadway Deborah phase just because Deborah just, it just felt like my name. It was very weird introducing myself to people by a name that I hadn't used for the first 16 years of my life. Uh, but it got too confusing and everyone said, oh, you're so sophisticated now. It's Deborah." And I said, no, I'm still not sophisticated. So we went back to Debbie. I felt like, you know, I built this brand name. We should just keep it. I embrace it now. Everyone embraced it for so many years. So it's full circle to Debbie. Got it. <laughs> so welcome, Debbie. Thank you. So let's talk about Wedding of Dreams to start. Yes. So September 8th, mm -hmm. airing on the Hallmark Channel. Mm -hmm. The movie is about someone who leaves their singing career yep. to become a music teacher at an Ohio high school. Mm -hmm. How real life is this? I, I know you were, you're a singer, but not really sure about the Ohio high school part. So fill us Right. Up. Not sure about that, although I do mentor kids in my spare time. In fact, where's Jackie? There's a little girl here named Jackie. Romeo, there's Jackie. Hi, Jackie. This little girl, I say little girl, she's a teenager, sings like, I don't even, you know, I gave her Where the Boys Are at my workshop, my last workshop, because I thought she had kind of that throwback, cool sound. But I, I do love working with young people in my, in my downtime. But I created this character loosely based on myself, and if, as if my life had gone really horribly awry. Drop by the label, drop by the boyfriend, no money, what am I going to do? So I go and um, seek out my estranged sister in Youngstown, Ohio. I happened to be doing a, a symphony date in Youngstown and was like, where am I? Where is this? Let's set a movie here. So, <laughs> so we did. So it's Youngstown by way of Vancouver, which is where we shot it. <laughs> I thought, I thought Van, uh, Youngstown had a very Canadian air to it. Yes, it did. And yes. rolling hills and <laughs> mountains. and Yes. But yes, Vancouver can be made to look like anything. So I've found out. But the thing that I connect to in this movie, and especially the sequel, so Summer of Dreams came out two years ago. And it was named Summer of Dreams for Only in My Dreams, which, which was featured in the movie. And I got to also write new music for the movie as, I, as well as for this one. And I love that about Hallmark, and I'm not just saying that because Samantha is here who basically single-handedly made my movie. But they, they love taking talent. Like Leanne Rimes just did a movie for them and um, Mariah and Kelly Pickler. And they love taking especially women and saying, bring all of yourself to the party, bring your music, bring your personality, bring a piece of your real life. And I think that's what connects, you know, I feel like that's what connected my music to people to begin with. It was really authentically me and my clothes I wore were authentically me. And I think that's, you know, with this movie, that's what connects people. And in the, in the end, it's really about a woman's struggle to juggle career, personal life, and that you can find new passions along the way. You can have this big life and these big aspirations but you, you can find maybe even more gratification in passing the torch to a young performer. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, yeah. So in the film, your character is named Debbie Taylor. Yes. But Debbie Taylor's hits from are Debbie the past Gibson's are hits. Debbie Gibson's hits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what I thought was interesting in the film is there's definitely a where are they now subtext. Right. to a lot of, of what goes on early on in the film. Yes. Has that ever been an issue for you when you have success so young 
do you have to worry about later in life having to answer the same questions over and over again? Whatever happened to? Where, yes. You know, like, I've been here the whole time. I'm on Broadway. I'm on right. TV. Right. I get... Well, someone will, someone would literally come backstage after I just finished belting it out on Broadway for three hours and say, are you still singing? <laughs> and what they mean is, are you still making pop music and records? So I understand that, you know, yes, it's if you're not like thrust into the pop culture world and you're not on entertainment tonight every night or every week, people do wonder where, where you are unless they're very up on your career. But I, I never really cared about that. I mean, even in the very beginning, I was like, wow, you know what, it's cool to be so public, but I didn't need it. I, I was very much excited to do my work. I get teary every time I see like video footage like we just watched, and I'm running through the crowd at Wembley Stadium, and it's like, wait, this is my life? That was my life? And those moments meant so much more to me than being on a red carpet and having people know who I was or, you know, asking what outfit I was wearing, what designer I was wearing. Because that's because people were responding to the music right. and to your creation and were literally reaching out to touch you right. to get to that. Yes, yes. And even now, you know, if someone, someone might start asking a string of questions which leads to them trying to put together, you know, even if I say one of the song titles, they go, oh, I know that song. And it's almost like a mother and the songs are my babies. Mm -hmm. It's like... I don't care if you know me. I'm thrilled you know the songs. A hundred percent. So has acting always been a passion of yours? Yeah, Because obviously I mean, the Broadway credits speak for themselves. Yeah, I was always, I was the kid that wanted to be Annie and lined up in, in the cattle calls where they closed the streets down. And um, I remember my grandpa getting nearly trampled to save me a spot in line. And then my mom and I would come after school and look for him. And so, yeah, it was always a passion to be on stage. Once I started writing songs, though, and I wrote my first song at five, but then I didn't really write anything until I was about 11. And when I started writing, and I would play a new song for the family in the living room, I just remember thinking, this is so exciting that I'm about to play something that no one's ever heard. And, it's, and I get to be the messenger for this song. And once that started happening, I was like, yeah, I could put my acting and theater aspirations on hold for a bit. I knew that that was, that was kind of the be-all, end-all for me. Is it true that you wrote an opera in fifth grade? I wrote something called Alice in Opera Land because I was performing at the Metropolitan Opera in the children's chorus, and kids were making fun of me. Oh, Figaro, Figaro, oh, she's going off to the opera. And I was like, they don't know how cool the opera is. It's, it's really... I mean, I still remember that stuff from when I was like eight. It stays with you, and it's, it's amazing. And I, I wanted to introduce other kids to opera, so I had, I had Alice doing the recitative, wandering around, and she would encounter these different principals from different operas, and they would sing their aria. And was that ever performed? It was just a project. It was just, I was in a, um, a creative program. I just did a, a performance of it for, like, you know, for a, an, an analysis to get a grade, really. And it, and it was never performed, and I've thought about it, and I don't even have it. I feel like, I feel like the school has it, the teacher has it, somebody Maybe has one of it. the Deb heads has it. Yes, probably. They know more about my life than I do anyway, so they might. But so, some of the big parts on Broadway, Eponine and Les Mis, Sandy and Grease... Belle and Beauty and the Beast, Sally Bowles, Cabaret, like all massive parts, either Broadway or West End. That's, you know, as high profile as it gets. 
Yes, that was intense. I, I had auditioned for Les Mis when I was 15, and it was the last thing I auditioned for before getting my deal here at Atlantic. And it was always my goal to get signed by my 16th birthday. And I got signed about a week after. Mm. And I said to the creative team of Les Mis in a very precocious way, you guys better get me now. I'm going to be a big recording star next year. And they were like, Okay, thank you. Next. Um, but I actually got called back at the time three times for Eponine. And um, when I started performing the song in my concerts at 21, my mom, who was one of the original momagers, Diane Gibson, she's, she probably has a picture up here in these hallways somewhere or something. She was kind of infamous. You know, she, was, she would sit around the conference tables with all males at the time, all males in suits, and pound her hands on the table and say, no, I want my daughter to produce this record. And they'd say, well, what has she ever produced? And she'd break out the demos. Well, she produced a demo of it in our garage. <laughs> and, but, you know, she got me that moment, you know. But she had called the creative team of Les Mis and said, you really need to come see how this teen pop audience is responding to this musical. When I got off that tour, I auditioned again. They still made me... People think they hand out Broadway roles 90% of the time. They don't. They still bring you in and you audition and you sing through the highs and lows of the score and they make sure you could do it eight times a week. Yeah, I got the role and it was amazing. You've also done national tours as well. I have. I've always loved touring theater. And what's so funny is when you mention the where are they now thing, People always had this attitude of like, oh, you know, she's resorting to doing touring theater, the career's not going well. What people don't know is, I've actually picked tours over Broadway productions before because I was like, well, I'm promoting a record. I want to get around and see everyone out there in America. This is a great way to do it. I get to do what I love eight times a week. I get to promote my record. I've always loved the idea that you could bring a Broadway caliber show to people all over America. So I've done a lot of tours. I've spent up to nine months straight on the road. Do you have a favorite show that either you've done or you haven't done? Just a favorite Ooh, musical? It's so tough. I mean, Cabaret, which you guys saw the clip of, was kind of, you know, I campaigned quietly for that role, and I even went and auditioned for shows I necessarily didn't want to do, but I knew the right people were in the room that would eventually call me for that. And it happened. So I, I just, I was so honored to do that show. So that's, that was definitely, definitely a favorite. Awesome. Yeah. So now let's go back to the beginning. Okay. So when I think of you, before we started to get to know each other, and I, now I know I was wrong, but when I think of you, I think of Long Island. I think of you were the girl who grew up on Long Island, but you were actually born in Brooklyn. I was born in Brooklyn, though I was only there till I was two, Bensonhurst. But, you know, there's still old Italian relatives scattered around there. I get pictures of like, is it St. Joseph's Day or, you know, the table is set beautifully with the lace tablecloth and the, we're like old school Italian, my family. And you're going to go, where'd the name Gibson come from? But my dad was an orphan and he, you know, his origins are kind of unknown. I know I've got several nationalities from his side, but I grew up with the Italians. I grew up on Long Island. Merrick. Merrick. Great place to grow up. Great place for the arts. Long Island. Yes. What is your first musical memory growing up on Long Island? Ooh. I mean, really, it was in my house because my, my parents were big music fans and my dad was in a barbershop quartet called The Peanuts. He was in a foster care home for boys. There were 100 boys in the home and four of them formed a quartet. A guy named Brother Frank Springman 
was like the leader of the, this group. And so my dad had a great natural singing voice, still does. You guys saw the videos I posted last year of he and I at the piano, and we're singing my way, and he just goes, my way, and he goes for the high note, and I go, how'd you do that? He goes, I don't know, I just opened my mouth, and I went for it, and I'm like, I wish singing was that easy to me. It's never been that easy to me. Like, he's amazing. And my mom was just always a big music fan. I remember they got a piano before they got a couch, thinking, you know what? We're going to eventually find the money for a couch, but we might not find the money for a piano. So they got the piano. And I remember running down to my sister's room, listening to Billy Don't Be a Hero on the piano and running back. I mean, listening on the, ra- uh, the record and then running back and picking it out on the piano. And you were able to play it. Yes, by ear. Yeah. By ear. What other music do you remember listening around the house back then? A lot of Motown. A lot of Motown. And I remember planting myself in front of the TV and watching Lawrence Welk, Donnie Marie. Liberace was my very first live concert at Westbury Music Fair. Lucky you. I now own one of his all glass mirrored pianos. Nice. Yes, I always loved him. Billy Joel and Elton John were always favorites of mine. And I saw saw Billy Joel in concert when I was about, I think, eight or nine. So obviously, growing up on Long Island, writing your own songs, playing piano, Billy Joel, check the box, check the box, check the box. So was he a big influence on your music as well? Huge. I mean, it's not that you listen to my music and you go, wow, I can hear Billy Joel in it, but just the fact that he was writing, playing. We sought out his piano teacher. I went and studied with his piano teacher, Morton Estrin, in Hicksville. And I just was enamored with his, his whole thing. What was it like when you finally got to perform with him? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, so I went to see Elton John in concert, and Elton was, you know, my other favorite piano man. And, and so I went to Madison Square Garden to see them in concert and went backstage. And Elton's like a walking encyclopedia of everything that's going on in, in the charts. And he was like, oh, I think you're on number 17 this week, aren't you? And I was like... You know, what, excuse me? Um, And he said, you know, do you want to, you play by ear, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, do you want to come up and do a number with Billy and I? I said, twist my arm. Yes, that's, okay, that's enough. So I ended up on stage that night with Billy and Elton doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and it was insane. I was, you know, and then the next week I saw Billy at Nassau Coliseum, and a crew member came out and grabbed me before the encore, and the same thing happened, and I ended up on stage with him that weekend, so what song was that, that was wild. That was Keeping the Faith. Wow. Yeah. And Amazing. he said, you take my piano down center. And he took the keyboard up wow. stage. Yes. That's so nice. So wild. So wild. Talk about bucket list. <laughs> I know. So, and so with the pianos in the house, no couch yet. Right. So we're all playing the piano and sitting on the piano, but <laughs> no couch. We're sitting Indian style on the floor. Yes. Cross-legged. What is the first song that you remember writing? The first song was... You guys could probably sing it with me. Make sure you know your classroom. Make sure you know your seat. I'll help you find your teacher. I hope she looks so sweet. Bum, bum, bum. Then repeat the first three lines, and the last line is, or you'll have to wait in the street. <laughs> I guess about my deep hidden fears about if you don't know where your classroom is, you're out. And how, how old were you when you wrote that? I was five. <laughs> I was five. That's and I'd go in and I'd play, I'd play it for the class, and they'd be kind of like, I don't know. It just didn't go over so well. <laughs> I was just excited to share it with them. But, you know, kids. Kids. Yes, kids. And then what was, what was the first song you remember writing where you said, oh, 
This could actually really be something. To have the confidence to go into a Les Mis audition and say, yo, Les Mis casting people, mm-hmm. tick, tick, tick. I'm going places, either with you or without you. When did you know that, hey, this song, this could actually be something? You know, I didn't think that this song could be something, but I knew that it sounded like a song. I wrote this, everybody sing that music. Everybody sing that song. If we all sing together. It was called So Sweet the Music. And I used to do it. It's funny, Holly Robinson-Pete, who's now a Hallmark gal, she used to be a singing waitress at this place called Something Different in New York City. And I was one of the kids that would sing for a hot pecan pie at the end of the show. It was like a dessert nightclub showcase for kids. And I used to get to do my songs there. And so that song, I felt like, hey, I have a song. you know. And it sounded a little bit like a, I don't know, McDonald's commercial or something. But it was a song, top to bottom. But I remember writing only in my dreams and saying, I, it was the first time I said, I want to write a pop hit. Like, I want to write something that could be on the radio. And I started with a beat. I had a Lynn drum machine. And I came up with the beat. And I wrote only in my dreams to that beat. And wow. I remember thinking, yeah, this could be on the radio. Wow. And I was 13. You wrote only in my dreams when you were 13? Yeah. Yep. So let's talk about the journey of that song, the evolution from the Lynn piano, from you writing that song at 13. Mm-hmm. And then by the time it became a massive worldwide hit, it was a few years later. Yep. So talk us through the journey of that song once you created it. So I was, I was writing and demoing about a song a day. All while going to school. All while going to school. I'd come home after school. I'd say to my mom, leave my plate of food outside the door. <laughs> and the, the, it was the garage, which, was the, which then became a playroom, which then became my studio, which didn't go over that well with my three sisters. <laughs> But um, yeah, so that was the studio. I remember, I remember my younger sister, Denise, who is so funny. She's got just a dry sense of humor. And her bedroom is right above the studio. And she was like, did I hear you doing a new song, like Shake Your Love or something last night? I thought I heard that like 80,000 times in my sleep. I was just, shake your love, shake your love. And she's, you know, on her bed. But th- we digress. So only in my dreams, you know, it was one of a batch of like a hundred songs that, you know, people forget back then, teenagers weren't getting signed. Now I just ran into the, that young gal in the hall upstairs who is a new artist on the label. And I'm like, you know, everybody's 15 now, you know, or 15 might even be old now. I don't know. But back then it wasn't the case. So, you know, I had an entertainment attorney shopping the demos for me that I was making in the garage. And, you know, we, I had rejection letters from Sony and from everybody. And I think I had one from Atlantic, but we went back. He somehow made his way into the dance department. And we actually invited Bruce Carbone tonight. Where's Bruce Carbone? Hi, Bruce. Hey, Bruce. Bruce is part of this story. Yes. So happy to see you. This is your chapter. Yes. I mean, it's just, I remember it so vividly. It was Larry Asgar, Bruce Carbone, and Anthony Sanfilippo in a back office with no windows and 12-inch singles, most of them with just labels, no pictures or anything, no so artwork. So this was the, the dance promotion department. This is the dance department, the club 
Yes. And so, Bruce, did you guys sign the record? Or was the record signed by? You signed the record and then worked the record yourselves. Yep. I figured it out. <laughs> my mom very well. My mom and I had the same philosophy where we're like, okay, there's a piece of vinyl. It's real. We can do something with it. And then she went and got a, a club booking agent. And you know, we had a few of them at the time, kind of freelance. And I would play a teen club, a straight club, and a gay club all in the same night. I would change in the car. <laughs> I'd do like a 30-minute like set of three songs they were the extended, extended, extended remixes, and the dancers and I were doing our thing. And um, Did you like to dance? I did like to dance. I was an awkward dancer. Like, I wasn't really a dancer dancer, but I liked to move. I liked to Usually sweat. it's it's one or the other. You're either the singer-songwriter or you're the dancer-performer who's recording other people's songs. Right, and you know, that's such a great point because that was where sometimes the confusion came in, where people felt like, where, where execs would feel like, we have to hire someone to write your songs, right, because I was, but I was like, no, why can't I be, be behind the scenes of my own, like, pop creation of myself? Right. So I had, a, and I think because I grew up in theater, you were supposed to know how to, to do everything. You were supposed to know how to sing, dance, act, play, read music, whatever you needed to do, and I just thought it was all fun. You know, and, and I, I never wanted to do a ba I still don't want to ever do a ballad until like fourth or fifth in the set. I want to dance off the nerves and then bring it down. And get um, the energy going in the crowd. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I would start only in my dreams, because I sang live, I sang live to track, never lip synced. And I would do this, no, 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 no. I'm very hoarse tonight, but I would do only in my dreams. And I'd hold out the, it was only in my as long as I could till I was blue in the face to get everyone's attention because everyone's drinking and picking people up and I wanted them to know I was singing live. So then I proceeded to do the, the show. Well, it's interesting. We were talking earlier about this era in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. We were talking about all the artists, the female pop artists, when you say that some of the executives said you should be Debbie G. Right. There was Alicia, and there was Regina, and there was Tiffany, and there was all these, yep. Stacey Q, and all these other yep. people back yep. then. Unless I'm mistaken, you were the only one who was not just co-writing your music. You were writing 100% of all of your hit songs. That's so rare even now. When you hear a song that's a hit on the radio, then you look at the credits. How did 17 people write this song? Oh, I know, I know. They each took a word. Right, I know. You wrote I know, I wonder. and co-produced yes. every song that you ever had a hit. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done co-writing sessions too, and they're really, they're really fun. And when you get with people that you spark with, what's fun about it is you go, wow, I never would have thought of this idea on my own. This idea is coming out of this very unique group of people. But I find I write my best when it's just like, you're channeling, you're cha like something comes to you and you're not thinking it, you're not 
running it by a committee. You're not putting it out in the room to see how it feels. It's just either, you know, it's coming through right onto the voice recorder or right into the notebook. You know, like Lost in Your Eyes for me was written in real time. It was real time. I mean, I sat at the piano and just ding, bing, bing, bing. And it just poured out. You know, and I think if that, I wonder what that would have been like if it, there was a room full of people saying, I think you should say right. if instead of but, or, because that's And, what and I'll take 30% for and, that. Right. <laughs> When you're writing such big hit songs so young, you haven't really lived the life of a veteran songwriter. It's like, <laughs> oh, that reminds me of this one time in Nam, you know. That, you know. <laughs> so, where did you get your inspiration from? Well, I mean, I think you can hear it's like, you know, it's all puppy love, really. And like a song like Foolish Beat, it's interesting because I have older sisters. I watch them going through their breakups and and everything. I mean, I remember writing a song, um, love starting again, but did it ever really end? Because my sister kept breaking up and getting back together <laughs> with the same guy, so love starting again. You know, the ideas just came really from whatever version of love you have as a teenager, and, and you're kind of imitating what you've heard. I mean, I was very influenced by everything pop at the time. Madonna, Wham, you know, I, I've loved George Michael forever, and you know, Madonna just just going, it was all just a little lonely. <laughs> that little vocal inflection, that's her. I think, you know, anybody starting to sing at that time emulated her to a degree. So it was funny being an artist, but being in high school and so impressionable and influenced by all those people at the same time. So yeah. It's interesting when you think about Madonna. Madonna wrote some of her songs, mm -hmm. but she also covered a lot of outside songs. Mm -hmm. Like a Virgin was an outside song. Mm -hmm. All of your hits were 100% written by you mm -hmm. and usually either produced or co-produced by you. Talk about that. When you're in the studio producing your own records, it's one thing to write. Then when you're going to turn this demo or this song into a record, what's that process like? Well, you know, I worked with a producer named Fred Zarr who actually was, um, he did the pop it on preach keyboard string intro, was not credited, I and mean, he was a brilliant keyboard guy, keyboard programmer, and he had a studio in Brooklyn in his basement. All of the vocals to all of my hits were cut in his vocal booth, which was his laundry room. There was an orange curtain across the washer and dryer, the washing machine and the dryer. It was, it was so much fun, fun times. But, um, was that on Long Island, too? That was Brooklyn. That was in Brooklyn. A lot of Brooklyn in my life. But yeah, so what would happen is I would get with Fred. I'd play him the demo. My demos, if you listen to a song from its demo stages to the finished product, the finished product was always a polished version of the demo. And he was so brilliant at keeping that purity. He wanted to bring to life what I was hearing my arrangements weren't as sophisticated as, as his. He was a way better player and a way better programmer. And I think, you know, whether it's in movies or music or whatever, the key to being a great producer is hire people better than <laughs> yourself and put the pieces together. 
And just know how to communicate. And if you can communicate technically, musically, you just have to keep finding the adjectives to get out of people what you want to hear. So the demos were not just piano vocal demos. They were produced. They were produced. Yes, they were produced. They were programmed. Again, I had a Lynn rack mount sequencer. I'm sure there's a lot of young people back there from the label going, what? Yeah, what's up? He'll have to look it up. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Carbone will tell you. He's old enough to remember. He knows. He knows. And the other crazy thing I was doing in that basement studio was, the garage studio, was I was doing radio IDs for everybody around the country, and I was splicing my own tape. Wow. So I was doing, like, I was going, you know, Z100's got the music I thought was only in my dreams, and I was splicing it into the TV track. That's probably something Andrea Gannis asked you to do. Yes. Would be my I am, guess. like, devastated that Andrea is not here <laughs> She's on her way to the airport. She's of like, course. oh, please tell she's Debbie. She's promoting. Yes. It's amazing that she's still here. There are always records to promote. That but is yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, it's like I could do a whole interview with you right now about how it's all changed or if, or if, or if it's kind of still the same. I, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes a contrarian because I think that my personal philosophy is there's really never anything new. There's just a new spin on something that's already uh-huh. existed. So we were talking about Broadway earlier when Atlantic, when you were signed to Atlantic and Atlantic was doing all the Frank Wildhorn stuff and Smokey Joe's Cafe, then Atlantic Broadway went quiet. And when we jumped back in a few years ago with Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen and Greatest Showman, it was basically because, hey, it doesn't doesn't mean that nobody wants this just because it hasn't been happening. Right. You know, they want it. They just don't know what they want it. You know? By the way, see, I had that conversation when I went into Les Mis because, quite honestly, a lot of the executives laughed at me and they said, you're killing your career by doing Broadway. And I sat at a conference table and I said, movie musicals are going to make a comeback, mark my words. <laughs> And they all went, ha, 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 ha. And I saw the shoulders going up and down, and everybody laughed at me. And I thought, what you just said. They don't know they want it, but does anyone ever switch the channel when Grease is on? Right. I mean, at the, even at that time, and I just, I knew it. And I was like, God, I could, I could be the person to help make Broadway hip, guys. Because it's not that I was like the hippest recording artist, but I could bridge that gap at the time. And now, obviously, we see all the recording artists doing the movie musicals, which just you know, makes my heart full. I love it. I love that it's That's crossed amazing. over. Because it's, it's all one genre to me. It's different genres, but it's all entertainment and it's all art. Totally. And it's, to me, it's all the same. Music is to entertain and educate. And, and move you. and Move you and, you know, help you get in touch with, you know, something inside. But, you know, at, at its root, it's entertainment, you know. Somebody once said that the music business is recession-proof, this was a long time ago they said mm-hmm. that. But um, <laughs> they said, it was a music publisher who said that music is recession-proof because when someone is really happy, they want to listen to music and they'll go and pay money for mm-hmm. it. When someone's really sad, they want to listen to music and they'll pay money for that it. That is a really good point. So there yes, you go. Yes, that's a really good point. Let's go back to the journey of uh, Only in My Dreams. Okay. So we're now in the windowless back closet with Bruce Carbone and his buddies. <laughs> now, how did Atlantic hear it? Was, did a radio DJ play it for somebody at Atlantic? No, an entertainment attorney oh, it was walked it in. Did it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then the original deal, was it just for one song? It was not even, yes, and it was only to release it dance. It was to do the 12-inch. It was like a five 
$5,000 deal. It was like, here, let's just, you know, here's your $5,000 promotion budget and recording budget all in one. I mean, it was, you know, very much, let's throw it up against the wall, see, see if, if it sticks. sticks. And I, you know, I'd have to ask Bruce, but I mean, I, you know, me and my mom were passionate about it. I know that. And I, you know, we were, we were up in that office a lot. And, you know, I think we just all kind of got the machinery going. And So at, at what point did someone with an office, with a window at Atlantic say, <laughs> hey. <laughs> That's a great line. You know, at, at what point did people start seeing that, hey, maybe this is sticking to that wall? Um, well, the, the deal was structured that if it went, I think it was top 10 dance, it would get released to pop radio. If it went top five at radio. Now, I now understand what a nearly impossible goal that was, but luckily I didn't know at that time, and I was a kid, and I was like, sure, I could have a top five hit. You know, it was ignorance was bliss, and we just kept going, you know, and, and so it, it, it got a radio release, and then it was like, okay, now how do we get around the country and shake every DJ's hand, and we were on that mission, and splicing the tape in the garage, and the deal was structured that if that went top five, then there'd be a second single, and the same thing would happen all over again. But by the time Only In My Dreams was hitting, which, by the way, took 65 weeks Amazing. from the time it was released to the time it went top five, then Doug Morris walked down the hall and shook my hand. Introduced himself. Introduced himself and said, yes. I mean, really, that's when I met him. And I would go into Doug and Ahmed's office with a brown paper lunch bag full of single cassettes and say, here's my album, and dump it on the desk. I never had an A&R person. Were you still in high school? I was in high school. Were you homeschooled, or were you actually going to no, school I in was between like, club days? I was stupidly attempting to go to school with the, you know, go, saying, well, I'm, if, if I'm in real regular school, then I'm normal, and I get to be normal. But it was the most abnormal experience ever, and it was torture. But I did it so that I could say that I did it. So here I am saying, I went to regular high school, everybody. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. So was that strange? And I have a very good therapist to this nice. day. Thank you. But yes, so it, it was It must have been strange, strange with the other kids when you're walking into class and they turn on the radio and your song is on. Yes, yes. And I was oddly trying to blend in school. I really just wanted to be one of the gang. And kids really wanted to, you know, now it would be called bullying. You know, because any time I turned a corner, I didn't know what I was going to get and what someone was going to say or do. But I did learn, what I learned is that I could be shaking on the inside, because I always was. I was always on, on high alert, um, but that I'd speak up for myself. And it kind of gave me a backbone or let me know that I had a backbone, you know, and I would try to, you know, if I heard someone say something around a corner, I'd say, um, I can hear you. Come around the corner and say it to my face, please. You know, and then my heart's pounding Aww. out of my chest, you know. So it was, it was a unique experience. Is it true that you went to your prom, but you told the DJ that he couldn't play any of your songs? <laughs> I think we did tell them. I say we, probably in advance. I don't, I don't think any of my songs got played at the prom. <laughs> and, I, and the night of the junior prom, I performed, and a bunch of kids from my, uh, my class came to the show. It was, it was a New York show. On your junior prom, oh, that's awesome. On my junior awesome. prom night. So we're continuing the journey of Only In My Dreams. Ultimately, it gets to number four on the Billboard mm -hmm. Hot 100. Yep. <laughs> Yay, Only In My Dreams. Yay. When that happened, you were 17 years old. Yeah. Of a song, again, I cannot understate or overstate this, rather, a song that you wrote. 
and wrote the lyrics, wrote the music, and co-produced. Mm -hmm. That what, one I didn't co-produce, but, yeah, but yes. You produced a great Lynn drum machine demo, I I'm did. sure. I produced the heck out of the demo, yes. At yes. 17 years old. So how surreal is that? Trying to be Very. normal, going to school, and you've got the number four record on the Hot 100. I mean, yes, it, it, it's, it still is surreal. You know, I mean, I, I still have a very big sense memory of being in that garage doing that demo, you know? So, like, I'll be in Asia next month and I'll be performing it to thousands of people who don't speak English but know the words that song. And it just still that song completely blows my mind. That you wrote when you were 13 years old. Yes. Amazing. It's wild. It's wild. Then, so now we need a second single. Right, Bruce, you've picked up the option now for the second single. You're, you're not sure if you're ready to commit to more. I'm still in, I'm still in the office with no window. Right. I don't think you ever left that office as long as I I think he's there. still in it, actually, I don't think he's, yes, he's still in it. So the next single was the song that drove your sister crazy, Shake Your Love. Yes, yes. And I remember I wanted a song called Staying Together, which you guys know. And all the powers that be picked Shake Your Love, and I'd say they picked right. Yeah. So Shake Your Love also eventually got to number four on the Hot 100. You're still 17 years old. Were you saying to yourself, this is easy? You know, it's weird. I don't think I, I wasn't saying anything to myself. I was just working. I was just like laser focused working. And because it wasn't like it is now where things move very quickly, it was like I would wait for that billboard call. Where's Gary? Gary Trust is here somewhere. There he Hi, is. Hi, I would wait for that billboard call every week. It wasn't from Gary back then. It wasn't think. from Gary, but um, no, but you know, it would be that, you know, it's number 72 with a bullet. You know, it's number 68 with a bullet. Uh, I mean, it moved slow back then uh, with no how, internet. How <laughs> but how awesome was that? It was because awesome. Because the suspense that was building up every week now, oh, yeah. you know, you can get any type of information anytime, anywhere, and it might not be as fun as it used to be. No, that was really fun. Like Torture, torturous, but fun. Right, torturous but fun. Yeah, it was really fun, yes. So now, with two massive top five smashes under your belt, I would imagine at some point Doug says, let's make an album. Yes, and that in album, six weeks. Let's make an album in, in six, six weeks, weeks to capitalize on the hoopla that's going on. So that album became Out of the Blue. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you're, did you, you said you were writing a song a day. Yeah. So you probably had a lot to choose from. Yeah. Did you choose all the songs with Fred for your album, or did the label get involved? Pretty what much. Was it, like? it was like me, my mom, Fred. I don't remember. I mean, I don't think the label got that involved in picking those songs. I think as much as everybody was excited by the success... It was still kind of like, is this a fluke? <laughs> that was the feeling I always got. Like, well, well, hey, she did this with these two songs. Let's see if she could do it again. I mean, that was the feeling on, on that first album. But I think they trusted my instincts. I think they got that 
a young girl knew what essentially, you know, other teenagers wanted to hear, which was a great thing. Like I said, there was no, there was nobody A&Ring my record, which I, I never realized what that meant until later. You know, again, it was, it was so pure. Nobody was picking apart a bridge or asking me to change lyrics. Or any, I mean, those were exactly as I wrote them. And Doug and Amit never got involved listening and making suggestions, asking no, questions. No, later. Later they did. Later they did, but not then. What about the artwork for the album? Oh, that fabulous artwork and haircut. By the way, that haircut happened because they wanted me to look older in the beginning because they didn't want people to know I was a teenager. So like that only in my dream single artwork I look, I think, older than I look now. <laughs> uh, you know, with that crazy hair. And that was like that hair growing out. And I was into teddy bears. And um, the makeup art, the photographer said, you know, your knee is pulling focus. And the makeup artist said, oh, why don't I paint a face on it? And so all that stuff happened. I mean, and then, you know, little girls came to the concert with the face on their knee and it became a thing. Amazing. Yeah. So the next single was Out of the Blue mm -hmm. that got higher than the first two, peaked at number three. Yep. The next one, Foolish Beat, mm -hmm. peaked at number one. Yes. And which is amazing because usually you peak high and then fall off. Mm -hmm. But here you went four, four, three, one. Yep. And then when Foolish Beat went to one, becoming your first Billboard number one, um, it set a record for the youngest artist ever to have written, produced, and performed a Billboard number one single, and if you don't believe me, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> And you know, I always felt like ballads were the easiest to produce because I always said they produced themselves. You have to just get out of the way and were you still recording? feature the song. Were you still recording in Fred's studio? In I was. I was. So when you look at this, this is the Hot 100 for June 25th, 1988. And you see your name is on top of Michael Jackson's name. Crazy. And by the way, I was obsessed with that too with the Billboard charts of seeing who I was sandwiched between week to week. Because again, I mean, these were concerts I was going to and posters that were on my wall. And but, but look at this for a second. Michael Jackson, Dirty Diana, written by Michael Jackson, produced by Quincy Jones. Crazy. Together Forever, not written or produced by Rick Astley. The Jets, Cheap Trick, didn't even write The Flame, produced by somebody else. But here you are with your name, both in parentheses and not parentheses, meaning that you were the producer and the songwriter of the number one song. Amazing. Pretty wild. <laughs> Pretty wild. 17 yes, years old. Thank you. So the album, certified three times platinum in America and worldwide, has now sold over 5 million copies. 
you know, we can keep saying, amazing, um, unbelievable, <laughs> awesome. But it, it really is to think about that. Well, um, the, well, what's crazy is, you know, it's just, it was a really grassroots story. I mean, there was no, people go like, how'd you get your break? And it's like, there was no one moment. It was just, it's like a good old fashioned American dream hard work story that we had. We didn't know anybody special. We didn't do anything special. My dad was working for TWA Airlines and he was stuffing all the mailboxes with the request lines for the <laughs> New York area radio stations. I mean, it was just very grassroots. So that's it. That's how, now we know how it happened. It was all the TWA. It was Joe calls. Gibson, yes. Because I, but I also thought about that. I always thought, if you can get it requested, if you can get it played, if people hear it, they're going to like it. But they have to hear it. And I guess that's still the trick. How still do you cut through? And I'm going to ask you that now. How do you cut through all the noise now I, I with a record? Because The trickiest thing so for an A&R person, and Bruce, you, you can you know, chime in on this as well, but the trickiest thing for an A&R person is... Bruce and I, I, for those of you who don't know me, I run A&R at Atlantic, and I've been doing A&R for 30 years, so I've been in a position to work with a lot of incredible artists and, and be in the studio making a lot of records. I think at this point, we know pretty much how to help our artists achieve what they want to do and, and make a really good record. Then, you know, sometimes that's the easy part trying to get it out there and cut through the noise so that people know it, hear it, and understand how good it is versus the 10,000 other things and that are flying around. And by the way, there's so many right great artists right now. Like, I think there were less when I started. I mean, we didn't have all of the outreach of, you know, influences on the internet that we could tap into and hear, like Jackie does. Like, Jackie, you can hear people from every single generation and be in influenced by them with your voice. And you can't, you, you can hear, like, you know, everyone from Janis Joplin to, you know, current artists in this little girl's voice. And I, we just were limited to our Donnie and Marie on Friday night or whatever it was. But and you so were, there's you a still lot of great artists in now. in listening to Elton John and Billy Joel, and I'm not sure if you listen to Carole King. I or, did, yes. You I know, the Carpenters are like amazing music coming in the early to mid-70s mm -hmm. that, you know, again, I would say that people now who are influenced by such amazing things a generation ago might not have been omnipresent because you couldn't take out your phone. Mm -hmm. If you took out your phone, you would be ripping it off the wall, you know, and right, then if you were right. trying to find music in it, it would have to be somebody on the other end singing to you. But I just, I just <laughs> feel like there's more music now. There's more artists. You know, I, I watch The Voice and I watch Idol and a lot of people go, oh, I, I go, there's like a, cr a crazy amount of vocal talent out there. So you, it's, you I would ju just... You judged... Which show? Junior, American Juniors? American Juniors, yeah, yeah. That was a moment where it was like uncomfortable to watch young kids being judged on television, and it's not anymore. But at that moment, it was like you have too to be, soon you, for you have, that. You have to be nice. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you, know, you want to be nice and you want to be supportive. But yeah, that, that show at that time, didn't, it didn't fully work. But yeah, I just think there's a crazy amount of talent. So I just wonder you know, how artists get heard now. Yeah, it's tough. But the label has to have the patience to be able to stay in a record and an artist's That's career for a really ask. long time. But again, even that is not new. If you said it took 65 weeks right. for that song to go, we just, you know, a couple of years ago, we had Jason Mraz, I'm Yours, 60 weeks to get all the way at radio. Ed Sheeran, the A-Team, probably 70 weeks to wow. go at radio. 
And wow. there yeah, would be... Yeah, people assume the week they hear it is the week right. it's, it all started. And sometimes the label, you know, has to take a deep breath and everybody say collectively, let's hold hands and we're going to stick in this record because we believe in it and we believe in this artist. And is it like when you're... Do you listen to music in a meeting and you hear something and instantly go, oh, we love that, we're, we're in? I mean, is it like instantaneous or what do you look for? I'm turning the interview around. Like, what do you look Bruce, for in a hit here, these yeah. days, really? Because, you know, I hear so many different things as a writer because at certain times I try to get into the game as just a writer and, you know, you meet with publishers. And it, again, it seems so like beat oriented and sound oriented. And where's the song in all of that these days? You're still listening for that. You're still listening for something that is going to elicit a genuine emotion. Right, and I think that is the one thing that successful music will always have, you know, as a through line, where I can play a piece of music for anyone in this room, and you're either gonna say, that moved me, or you're gonna stick up your middle finger, and it didn't, you know, walk out of the room. You know, so as A&R people, that's what we're listening for. Is this being said in such a new, unique way that right. I'm really interested in what this person has to say. Well, you just touched on something. So Ahmed Erdogan, when he was alive, said to me, I had, sent, I had submitted a song to Anita Baker called In Blue. I guess he likes me in blue. That ended up on one of my albums. He called me when he heard it and said, darling, that is what you need to be doing. He said, you know, he said, just what you said. You need to have that line. He said, when the sun comes up over Santa Monica Boulevard, that line made Sheryl Crow a star. You know, he said, you have to listen. And it's funny, I heard, I heard the Dua Lipa New Rules today, and the line, if you're under him, you ain't getting over him. I said, Amit is smiling down from the heavens on that lyric, because he was very big on that twist. How can you, right. how can you say an old sentiment in right. a new way? A that, timeless sentiment. I knew that song was a hit when my 17-year-old daughter came up to me and she was like, did you hear what she said? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good gauge. Right. There you go. That doesn't change either. You know, it used yep. to be, well, I can't play this loud enough. My parents will hear it right. walk in I the I remember room. meeting Lionel Richie and he said to me, you can hear a hit song on a tin can and a banjo. That is true. So it's good to hear you say that that's still true. Yeah, no, that's yeah. still true. And... The amazing thing about music is there are no rules. You just mentioned Lionel Richie. Do you know that Lionel Richie cannot read music? You know, it's, know there are yeah, no I rules. Know I know. This guy's one of the greatest music. songwriters of all time. He can't read music. Yeah. No, I know. I have people, you know, come and play and play in my, my live shows or whatever. Same thing. They go, I'm playing by ear. So if you need to transpose something, I can't do it on the spot, but give me a heads up and I'll. Yeah, there's a lot of talent that just. What are some of the other memories you have back then promoting the Out of the Blue album? Touring, shooting videos. Did you work with Paula Abdul on some of your videos? I did. Paula Abdul choreographed the Shake Your Love video, and a lot of the choreography got kind of edited out. It was that kind of quick cut thing, but I did work with her on that. Was that fun? Yes. I love Paula. That was so much fun. And I'm trying to think. Oh my so goodness! Touring, so touring, you were when you were 17, 18. Were you touring all over the world? Did you go to Asia? Did you go to Europe? So I did promo tours all over the world. So like I did my first Japan trip when I was 17 and fell in love with Asia. Love Asia to this day. But I didn't do concerts there until the Electric Youth tour. So that tour brought me all around the world. But I did. So I did the clubs, and then I did colleges, and then I did like the Jones Beach type theaters and amusement parks and 
and then Radio City, and then graduated up to Madison Square Garden, and you know, again, it was what a, was that it like was your a build. First, your first garden, what was that like? That was amazing. That was amazing, and it's like you're trying to kind of psych yourself out to think it's just a you know, it's another stop on the tour. It's show five of the week, <laughs> but it's Madison Square Garden. And everybody you know is there, too, by the way. It's the biggest meet and greet you'll ever do in your life. All the, Everybody's bullies, there. All the bullies from high school were there. Oh, the she was my from... friend. Look. Totally. Yes. People either, you know, ended up loving me or hating me, and none of it had anything to do with the truth. That Yes, exactly. The bullies were there, out in full force. And I remember doing the Atlantic 40th. I mean, that's a huge memory. Who else was on that bill? I sang in between Led Zeppelin and The Who. Wow. And I was wearing a little black dress and a denim jacket and had a scrunchie in my hair. And I remember knowing, and it's funny, when I got to play Funny Girl, like Fanny Bryce and Funny Girl, I related so much to understanding how you had to win over an audience. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be the toughest audience ever. I didn't want to just do the dance stuff. I was like, I've got to sit at an instrument. I've got to sit at the piano. And, you know, it was live on HBO. They're not giving you an extra three minutes. I was kneeling on the edge of the stage in soundcheck, leaning over to the producer of the show saying, you've got to let me do Foolish Beat. I'm going to get booed off the stage if I'm just jumping around singing dance songs. Like, you've, I've got to do a ballad. And, and, and they said, okay. <laughs> and I got to do the ballad. How many songs did you get to do? I don't know. How, how many you guys? Deb heads? Do you know? Was it three? three? I was going to say four. Was it four? four. I think it was four. Four and happy birthday. There you go. Who would you sing happy birthday to, Atlantic? To Atlantic. Very nice. Yes. When's our birthday? Any Atlantic people know when it's coming up again? We can sing again. No, I don't know. Either. Oh, the Atlantic birthday. I don't know. I don't Nin know when that 1947, is. 1947, but I don't know the date. So the concert know. was when? Deb right. Heads? I don't know. 1987 or 1988? 80, I don't remember. I think it was 87. I think it was 87, but... Oh, 88. 88. 88. 88. Bob, Bob Kaus would know. He was there. You would know. <laughs> so while you're doing all this touring, shooting the videos, having the number ones, did you go to high school graduation? Did you graduate? Did you get the cap and gown? I did. I did. But I had to sign off. We had to sign an insurance waiver saying that if anyone got hurt because of press being there, that I was responsible. And my mom came to me in her true managerial way and said, you know, I'm... I'm going to spell out all the facts for you and then leave it to you. And I was like, oh, sign. Nobody's going to get hurt. And I did not torture myself all through high school to not graduate with my class. So, yes, I graduated with my class. With no injuries. And then ran. <laughs> no injuries. No injuries. Okay. Thank God for that. No injuries were sustained. So let's get into the second album now, which was Electric Youth. It came out in January 1989. Mm-hmm. So there's a saying that you have your entire life to write your first album and then six weeks to write your second. Was that an issue for you if you had hundreds of songs? No, written? this was basically still a lot of those songs that I'd written before plus some new ones. Like Lost in Your Eyes, I wrote and started performing on the Out of the Blue tour. I felt like I had a cushion of songs. And, and you know what? At that age, you just don't feel that kind of pressure anyway. That's the beauty of starting young. You know, I had no rent to pay. I wasn't like, oh my God, what if I never have a hit again? I was just like, this is great, this the, is fun. You were in the moment. I was in the moment. Right. Yeah. And Lost in Your Eyes also went to number one mm -hmm. on the Billboard Hot 100. Yep. So back to back number ones yes. with. Um, and I didn't expect there to be such a beat, right? like 
you know, I feel like it got leaked at one point and radio stations were saying, giving their ID over it so that nobody else could grab it. And I was like, I had no idea that was going to happen. That was wild. <laughs> oh, my God. What is that? Oh, my God. See, I don't even... Where did you, where did you find this? I don't know. That's wow. fantastic. I have no Let's idea who had this. Hi to everyone. Well, you read it. You wrote it. Hi to, hi to <laughs> everyone reading this. One album, a tour, a graduation, and a driving permit later. Whoop, whoop. There I am in my 57 Ford Fairlane hardtop convertible. I bring you my new single, Lost in Your Eyes, and the album Electric Youth, coming soon. If you don't hear from me this month, it's because I'm home eating mom's pasta and watching MTV. See you in a bit. <laughs> Oh my God, that is hysterical. Those look like emojis. I know they're they're live, real, hand drawn emojis. Amazing. Amazing. That is hysterical. I don't think I've seen that since then. No idea I did that. When when Lost in Your Eyes came out, went to number one, the album, Electric Youth, also came came out, went to number one, and you were the first female to ever simultaneously have the number one single and the number one album in the same week? Gary, is even, that right? I don't even think I knew that. Gary nods his head. He's like, yeah, sure, whatever you say. Which is... David Deb Salador, Nads, is, that, is correct? that right? My correct? very first publicist is here, too. Where's David? David. Yes. David, is that right, David? The very first female artist ever to simultaneously have the number one single and the number one album in the same week. That's amazing. I love this stat. In 1989, you shared the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year Award. This is crazy. With Bruce Springsteen. That's crazy. So did you get to duet together at the awards? No, he didn't show up. I don't know if he liked sharing that with me. I'm sharing it with who? But uh, yeah, that was pretty wild. Amazing. That was crazy. Do you still have your ASCAP Songwriter I, of the Year I award? I do, I do. That's something to be very proud of. I do, and I have all the individual song plaques on the, the wall. Because here's the other thing. We talk about music, and then we talk about the music business. If you're writing all of your songs yourself, the copyrights are 100% yours, mm-hmm. and you're not sharing the publishing with anyone else. Mm -hmm. You had a publishing deal with, you did or you didn't? With what, with, uh, well back back in the day, Mm -hmm. I say, well, I was with EMI. That's what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah, and now I work with music sales. Got it. Like on my catalog. Yeah. But was the EMI deal? Was it a co-pub or was it an admin deal? That was a Heather. You help me. I don't even. That was a. Oh, that was administrative. Yeah. So you yeah. owned your own copyrights. Yeah. Yeah. Which seventeen-year-old having these massive hits? What I talked about before, when you hear a hit song now on the radio and it's got seventeen writers, that means that the pennies that trickle in from streaming have to be split on the writer and the publisher side 17 ways. You didn't have to do that. No. No. <laughs> so And you know, that you. when they come to you to clear stuff, because, you know, if they want to use something in an ad or what, I can't imagine like 17 people having to right. sign off on, on so that So now stuff if Hallmark either. wants to use your song, it's yes, an easy it's all very easy breezy. Shop. It's yes. very easy breezy, yeah. So Electric Youth, more stats, two times platinum, more hit singles, the title track, Electric Youth, No More Rhyme, both, again, big hits. Did you have fun? Was the second time around as fun as the first time around? It was. That all felt like one big ride. That was like one big, fast-moving train, honestly. I'll tell you what happened on the second album that was really cool. I got to mix at places like the Hit Factory, where they call you and they say, what type of toilet tissue would you like? <laughs> and what snacks? Would I think I, I 
worked on mixing that album with Bob Rosa, who's an amazing, amazing engineer. I was fueled by Cool Ranch Doritos and Peanut M&M's. Perfect. They had an endless supply of it for me uh, at the studio. But really, like, everything kind of got up to notch in that way, which I have to say was fun. <laughs> it was fun. I wasn't just going to Brooklyn. I was coming into the city. <laughs> when, so we talked about Atlantic. When you signed, it was originally this $5,000 single. Um, now, with your number one album and multiple... Multiple hits, top five hits, multiple number one hits. You must have become the biggest artist on the roster. I don't know. I mean, I, mean, what, I don't what know. What was that was, like? I mean, you, you told I us... I had my own niche here, for sure, at the time. You know, there weren't... There, I was the only young solo girl. Were there any other... You told the Ahmed story about the Anita Baker pitch and the Santa mm -hmm. Monica Boulevard Shaw Crow line. Mm -hmm. Any other stories that you could remember that we may not know about Atlantic back... In the late 80s, early 90s, Amit, Doug, Andrea, Bruce Carbone, anybody. Oh, my goodness. Bruce, Paul Cooper Bruce, out on the West Coast, yep, actually, yep. who I still keep in touch with periodically, and Tony Mandich. But yeah, I'd go, I'd go out, and, and Paul Cooper would send, let me use his, he had his own driver, and he'd say, take the girls to Disneyland. It was me and my younger sister. And I mean, so, you know, there were those things, like that just, when you said that, that memory sprang to mind. Yeah, it's and something you'll never forget. No. And then, you know, being on the label with artists, like, I remember going to see In Excess and Michael Hutchins. Michael Hutchins was alive, and he was amazing. And the fact that I had access to these artists and these concerts was amazing, you know, and kind of got to walk in on the arm of the executives, who were always like, you know, like papas to me, you know? They were super respectful, and you know, really took me under their wing. You know, it's, it's amazing when you think about that time where we were just taking a, a little tour upstairs earlier before we came down here. And if anyone's been up on the 11th floor, which is one of the Atlantic floors, the perimeter of the floor is all posters, magnetic posters of our current artist roster. In the interior, it's all posters of 70 years of Atlantic Records history. And we break them down by decade. And so we were walking by the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and we get to the 80s, and there's Michael Hutchins in NXS, and there's Phil Twisted Collins Sister. and Dee Snyder yeah. right next to, uh, to Debbie. Yeah. And, you know, your legacy is literally part of the fabric upstairs. It's wild. I mean, I've always said, like, you know, I always want to do new things, obviously, in my life and my career, but I've also often said, you know what, if I never do another thing again, I, like you just, I'm part of this history and it's just wild to me. Once, that's the beauty of music. Once you have that hit, like I always laugh when people make fun of one hit wonders. I go, do you know how amazing it is to have that one hit? Do you know how many no-hit wonders mean, there are? Right, like just just one. I mean, because usually one-hit wonders, their hit is so memorable. It's like they can't ever top it. So you know, to to just to have had that moment, you know, it'd be lovely to have another moment. Or like we spoke about earlier, you know, composing a Broadway show or you know writing for other people. You know, whether it's with seventeen people or by myself or whatever, it'd be lovely to have that moment again, or with my, for myself as an artist or whatever. But if I didn't, you know, just to have had that moment is 
is so incredible. And it's so funny because you say once that music is out there and it's for everyone to claim as their own, Mm -hmm. everyone has their own memories. I was lucky enough to get an advance of Wedding of Dreams, thank you so much. (laughs) And watching it and hearing some of these old hits, you immediately just go back to where you were. I remember I was in college, student teaching, getting a degree to be a high school English teacher, which is probably why I'm up here doing this. But, um, but, and I remember vividly being in the teacher's lounge, talking about with one of the teachers in the school, who is this young girl with foolish beat? You know, and that came right back to me. I haven't wow. thought about that in 30 years. That's so cool. Well, that's why I, I always feel that way. Like when, you know, if, if someone comes up to me on the street or wherever and, I now get it with like Hallmark fans that didn't even know my music, like older gal. I'll call them older gals. That'll come up to me in the airport. You play on that Hallmark show, <laughs> Summer of Dreams. But you know, yes, when people come up to me, it's usually in this really cool way with some anecdote about how the music was a part of the soundtrack of their life, and it never gets old hearing that. A lot of my coworkers at Atlantic. Um, last week were telling me about the posters they had in their rooms of your music and how they were so excited to finally, as an employee of Atlantic, get to meet you and remember the fan that they were back then when they were listening to you. That is so cool. So a few more albums on Atlantic, Anything is Possible, Body, Mind, and Soul. Mm -hmm. Were these records you continued to write and produce on your own? So, no. I actually, on Anything is Possible, collaborated with Lamont Dozier, which was insane. Spoiler alert, future guest, Rock and Roll High School coming this week. You heard it here first. Oh, give a big hug for me. Lamont is awesome. And being such a huge Motown fan and having performed his songs on tour and a big Motown medley I did and everything, that was incredible. The title track we did. And I don't think anyone would have ever pegged that to be a Lamont Dozier track. That's what was so cool because it had a very current sound. And, you know, something Bruce had said earlier about, you know, labels having patience and sticking with their artists, I often think about this. So this album was very much a transitional album for me. It was me saying, who am I now? Much like anybody at 20 years old says, who am I now? You know, it wasn't total teeny bopper music. It wasn't where I was going next. It was right in the middle of something. And I think that everyone panicked because... I was hitting bullseyes. And then this one didn't really hit the bullseye. And so that's when everybody, you know, Doug, Ahmed, and everybody said, oh my God, what are we going to do next? And in the panic, I think the music got kind of convoluted. And I think that I saw myself as this artist, like a Billy Joel, in the sense that, oh, they're going to allow me to have, you know, seven albums. And one might not sell, and one might sell, and one might not sell. And they wanted everyone to sell at that point, because I, I, was, I was a pop star at that time. And so by the time we got to Body, Mind, Soul, um, I, I had submitted a bunch of songs that, you know, it's funny that you were at SBK. They, some of the songs were kind of Wilson Phillips-esque, because if you think of Lost in Your Eyes, you can tell, like, I'm from the suburbs, I'm melodic pop, and it was really a continuation of that. Um, but everybody was a little more into the urban thing at that time. And, and so everyone wanted me to kind of meld with the urban thing, but I'm like, oh, when you think urban, you don't think like, yeah, Debbie Gibson from the streets of Long Island. Like, it's not, 
Not really happening. But the theater girl in me was like, I can be versatile. I can do this. I can play the urban pop star. I was like, I'm going to do it my way, their way, my way, their way. And, and Sturkin and Rogers are awesome. And we had a phenomenal time. And I'm really glad in that intro you guys saw at the beginning, I did that song, Losing Myself Over You. Now, at the time... It was in this really lower register. It was very sultry. And I was 21 years old. And 21 back then was like 18 going, you know, 18 going on 21, not like it is now, which is 21 going on 35. So I was like a real 21 or even younger trying to do this thing and play this role. It was like I was doing Gypsy Rose Lee in the video, <laughs> but I was me. And so I think people got very confused. I literally performed that song in Chile four years ago or whenever it was, five years ago. And I was like, I, I understand this song now. I can deliver this song now. And I couldn't back then. I emulated, so I delivered it, you know, with a technical vocal and my idea of whatever that lyric, I'm losing myself over you meant, but I didn't know. Nothing I can do, I'm losing myself. And so I think that's where we lost that pop audience a bit. Um, you know, and, and Doug and Ahmed had very strong views of what they wanted me to be and how they wanted to promote it. And it wasn't congruent with who I was. And that's when I said... I need, to, I need to walk away from all this for a minute and go do Broadway, because for me, Broadway will be a way for me to be pure and showcase what I do in another way. Was it difficult leaving Atlantic, since Atlantic was your home, or was it very, just another stop? No, very. I was disappointed that I felt like they lost, the, the execs lost faith in me because of one missed bullseye. So I felt like, wait a minute, I'm still the girl who wrote those hits, and I still live in the real world, and I still know how to communicate with people, and I still know how to write a good song, so just wait, let it unfold. In my mind, art unfolds, it doesn't, it's not something, you, you can't put a gun to someone's head and say, write a hit that sounds like whatever, whatever, and have it be magical. I think those really inspired songs, and again, you know them when you hear them, you know, when a Bruno Mars comes in with his latest whatever, and you go, I don't know what ethereal place that came from, but you know it, you know? And then you know when people are writing something that they're like, hey, th this sounds like a hit, right? Because that's always going to sound like a rip off of a hit. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I didn't want to do that, you know? And then Brian Koppelman ended up saying, I know you as a singer-songwriter, Carol King type, you know, let's do that. And, and we did that. You know, but in talking about the Atlantic days, yeah, it was, heart, it was heartbreaking, really. Um, I will say Amit kept up with my career all the way up till his passing. And he came and saw you on Broadway. came right? and saw me on Broadway, and he said, darling, you, can, you have become so many things. And I thought, like I could cry to I, Amit Erdogan saying that to me, you know, was amazing. And... Um, you know, and again, he continued to want to hear what I was up to as a songwriter, and he was just very nurturing. He was, you know, he loved artists. Great, greatest record man. 
ever. Mm -hmm. So film, TV, Broadway, most importantly music, you know, you've done everything. What, what's next? Obviously September 8th we know what's next, but um, <laughs> what, you, you don't live in Long Island anymore, you live in Vegas. I live in Vegas, that's a whole long story about how I ended up out there, but I've been getting the New York bug since I'm back here. There's something about, you know, I know these streets. I've lived, I've lived, in, I lived in Manhattan for 13 years. Um, so, but yeah, you know, there is new music um, that these guys have been hearing about for a long time. I have dealt with some health issues in the last five years that have um, just caused me to not be as uh, ready as I want to be yet. And, and I know that the moment will happen and it'll be like, Probably six weeks, and the whole album will be done. Right. Um, and I don't even, and I don't think about where will I fit in the in the landscape or where, because I never. I, I think that I just have to do what I do. Um, just be you. Just be me, and and then let. I always said, even with um, producing, it's let the song lead the way, let the music lead the way, and it'll tell you where how you need to promote it or where you need to go. It could be end up in a film soundtrack. It could end up as you know. I've often thought it'd be fun to be a surprise feature on someone's record that, you know, I'm a huge Eminem fan. I've always felt like I could write a great piano Eminem hook because I write, the stuff I write a lot lately is kind of that haunting, haunting melodic stuff. So there is a new music chapter. Um, I've, I've composed her on two musicals, one called The Flunky, one called Skirts. Would love to see those on Broadway. Um, and I love scoring, too. I, I co-scored a documentary, and um, Thomas Newman's probably my favorite. I could see doing that someday. I, I think in those types of arrangements, they're running through my head at all times. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to do, and, and continuing my mentoring programs with, with young people. I think it's so cool. I did a recording boot camp. The year Kanye did Love Lockdown, and we were out at Glenwood Play Studios, and all these kids are running around and Kanye's got his big drum set up in there. And it was just such a real world, real deal experience for these kids. And we did like 15 songs in 15 days. And I had a track guy in, in a lounge doing stuff. And we were, I just, I love that. I love uh, being able to give kids what I got out of, you know, uh, going into my garage without a song and coming out with one. So <laughs> when I can help a, a kid do that and they have their master in their hand to do, and by the way, people go, did you take their publishing when you, do? I go, no, actually, we had someone from ASCAP come in and talk right. to them, and we taught them how to hang on to right. their rights, and, um, you know, I, I would say, go do what you want with the song, you know, whatever. Uh, You're really paying it forward. You're helping Yeah, them. yeah. Well, music, it's so interesting now, because... Um, it's still a way artists make money, but it's also like a promotional tool, too. It's like a weird... I mean, and I can ask you about that, too. It seems like, look, there's a lot of music given away also, but music to me is something that's... Should be, it should be available to everybody in some way, and there's a time and a place it's sold, and there's a time and a way it's shared. And so for these kids, it was, you know... They didn't need to go get my permission to go right. use it. Amazing. Super fun. So thank you so much for coming in and, and doing this. Thank and you. So much good luck with your friends at Hallmark uh, September thank 8th you. for Wedding of Dreams. Everyone get ready to watch. Any uh, final words of wisdom, advice to our Atlantic crew, our Warner Music crew, the Debheads, 
Anyone oh my goodness. Sure? Well, the dev heads, you know how I feel. Thank you, I always say. Thank you for sticking with me all these years. It's amazing. What I love is that I don't have a fickle group of supporters. I have supporters that are there for me, whether they're loving the music this year or not. I sound like crap at one concert or I don't, or they're, they're in for the long haul. Amazing. Which is amazing. They're family. It's amazing. 100%. Thank you so much, Debbie Gibson. Thank you. Thanks again to Debbie Gibson for spending time with us this week. You can learn more about her career and upcoming projects at DebbieGibsonOfficial.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high.